That's Genesis 14. At a time when Amraphel was king of Shina, Arioch was king of Elessar, Kedalomah, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goyim. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shememba, king of Zobayim, and the kings of Bela, that is Zohar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddam, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subjects to Kedaloma, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedaloma and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Riphraites in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavi Kareathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Elparan, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zohar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddam against Kedaloma, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shina, and Arioch, king of Elisa, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who, who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham, the Hebrew. Now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshkol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedaloma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavi, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, 
creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the good for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hands, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and a share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anna, Eshgul, and Mamre. Let them have their share. This is the word of the Lord. Fantastic. Let's pray before we look at God's word. Father, we thank you so much that we can sit here and hear from you. Please speak through your word. Holy Spirit, don't let it just fall on hard ground. Father, I pray that we would be changed by your word, not by mine, but by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Why did God make us? Why did God make the person sat next to you? It's an important question. Have to think about it for a second. We get trained to give thinking time in my profession. Why were we made? People have tried to summarize the teaching of the Bible, and they've said, what is the chief end of man? This is from the Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith. And the answer that people sort of boil the Bible down to is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, what we're looking at today in this part of the life of Abraham, I think, is what this might look like played out. What does it look like to glorify God? What does it look like to enjoy him forever? I've got two verses, two points. The first is fight for peace, which comes from the first half. So please do keep your Bibles open. It couldn't be easier. I don't know if there is another place in the Bible where the, the chapter that you're on matches the page number. I couldn't find anything. Tell me if you do. But we are in chapter 14 of Genesis, which is on page 14. It could not be easier to find. Please do scout, scout around and have a look, because I'm going to be referring to it heavily today. And it's basically split into two halves, as I see it. There's the first half, verses 1 to 16, and then from 16 to the end. And my first point is fight for peace. My second point is celebrate peace. So what's actually going on where we are? It's a bit confusing, isn't it? And may I just say a huge thank you uh, for reading those names, meaning I don't have to. But I haven't got to mention them once, actually. Uh, So you've really done the hard work there. Thank you so much, Dan. So for 12 years, in verse 4 of chapter 14, for 12 years they had been subject to, to Kedolema, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Basically... We've got this part of the world called Mesopotamia between the two rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And you've got these kings in these areas, not a dissimilar size to our own country, actually, here in Great Britain, if we're talking about perspectives, this little part of the world between those two rivers. And we have these five kings. And these five kings uh, rebel 
against these four kings, which are their overlords, who are um, led by a king called Kidaulama. All of this is secondary, really, to the fact that you have five kings who rebel against four kings. So there's wars going on. This is the first recorded war in the Bible. Sad to say, it probably wasn't the first, and it certainly wasn't the last. But this is a war that people get caught up in, and we see it today. If you look at verse uh, 9, we can see that you have four kings against five. And essentially, uh, this war pulls into it like a black hole, the people of God who are here, particularly Abraham, we'll see, and importantly, his nephew, Lot. Now, we've already seen, we've been looking through the life of Abraham since we've started back in Genesis, and we've seen a trajectory uh, where he starts off as quite an interesting character um, who just seems to be chosen because God is loving towards him. We see that he has some questionable attitudes during his time in Egypt. We see a slight development in chapter 13 where he's quite generous to his nephew Lot. Now, this is important what we see here. If we rewind to what we learned last Sunday in Genesis chapter 13, we see that there's dispute between the shepherds of Abraham, who has great wealth, and those of Lot. And Abraham, Abraham shows great generosity and says, listen, you take whatever land you want. And Lot makes a very wise choice in his own eyes. He goes to these well-watered, wealthy lands in an area called Sodom, which was on the plains. He makes what the world would see as a pretty sensible choice. And notice, if you have a look, uh, you've got it in front of you. In chapter 13, verse 4, you can see that Lot puts up his tents near Sodom. Near Sodom. But we see in verse 12 of chapter 14, so do you see there's a, there's a change here that from t- verse 12 in chapter 13 through to verse 12 in chapter 14, Lot is no longer near Sodom. He's in Sodom. And this city that he is in is attacked by these uh, four angry kings because uh, the five kings have rebelled and they've entered. And we see in Verse 12 of chapter 14, they also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Can you imagine how awful that would have been for Lot? We see this happening in the world around us. To genuinely be carried off to goodness knows where, your possessions are taken, your um, loved ones, let's say the, your daughters, we know he's got daughters later on, are the property of some, probably some Hittite soldier. It, it's pretty dreadful. He's been enslaved. He has no peace. There is absolutely no peace for Lot. But you notice that he had actually had a bit of a spat, quite honestly, with Abraham. He had gone his own way. He'd taken what was his. There'd been family division. There'd been family strife. He'd gone and he'd lived near Sodom that was well known for being a hotbed of depravity. We're talking downtown Amsterdam. We're talking... um, New Street, in its worst forms, um, we are talking that he has gone basically to where it's known to be a pretty dark place. And he's taken away. But how does Abraham respond? 
Let's look at verse uh, 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Notice his response here. Abram's response is not like, Lot has made his bed, he can just sleep in it now. It's a great personal risk to him to go and pursue these five, sorry, these four powerful kings who have just won a load of battles themselves, who have taken somebody who quite honestly has taken wealth from him, who has shunned him, who has chosen not to treat him very well. And his response is this. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he went. He called out 318 trained men. Now, this word relative is interesting. Um, In the Hebrew, they use the word kinsman, kind of like of the same tribe, same type of person. He is a family relative. He's actually his nephew. But I think that Lot can represent two types of people to us now. I think Lot can represent genuinely our family, genuinely our Christian family, and genuinely our fellow humans, our people of our kin. So what does that mean for us if Abraham pursues his kin? Well, he can see that his nephew is enslaved. He has no peace. So he goes and he fights for peace. What does fighting for peace look like for Abraham. Well, it says that he called out the 318 trained men. Now, in Hebrew, that kind of means like drew out. That wasn't easy. So you're trying to persuade 318 blokes to go and risk their lives in pursuit of someone they don't even know, Lot, lots of them, because we see that he's got other people in tow. He drew them out. This is kind of a leadership. He actually charges other people to come with him to go. So we see he brings other people with him. So by fighting for peace, he brings other people with him. What else does he do as he fights for peace? Well, you see, it says he went as far as Dan. I want to know what that meant. Now, to the Hebrew readers, as far as Dan meant something. But to us, that doesn't mean anything. I kind of think all these tiny little kingdoms, what was that, a couple of days away. I actually worked out that was 150 miles, which on Google Maps, if you were to take uh, 150 miles from where we are right here, you'd, in a straight line, you'd hit Durham. Okay, so he they goes as far as Durham, essentially, from here, 150 miles. And then I was like, well, okay, I could do that. And I, I reckon you get to Durham in about four hours in my car. Well, what does that mean on foot? Um, assuming that you have a camel, camels, according to Google, take you can go about sort of six, about 20 miles a day. So we're talking a week's travel. And to be honest, they may well have been on foot going at the pace of the slowest. I don't know. But we're talking about a long exhausting way. So it's dangerous and it's exhausting fighting for peace. He's not making any bones about it. It's not easy. Um, And then it says, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. Now, we can see here that my daughter doesn't like my sermon, I'm sorry. Um, We can see that it is something which requires strategy as well. 
You notice there um, in verse 15, he divided his men. So you can kind of think of like, I don't know, like a two-pronged attack. Um, and does it at night? There's strategy behind it. So there's actually thought that goes into the pursuit. He's got the whole week getting there probably to actually think about how he's going to retrieve his nephew. So we know it's dangerous. We know it takes a long time. We know that it requires real thought. So we need to fight for peace, and we can do that. I think this is something which is incredibly difficult, and it's easy for me to say this stood up here, but it's not me saying this. I'm just saying that I think that Abraham is living out what it looks like to glorify God. He's living out. By fighting for peace, he's glorifying God. I think that's, that's just what it's saying, and we can see that it's difficult. We can see it takes a long time. We can see that it requires thought. Now, what does that mean with those different people that Lot could represent? Maybe there's real dispute that you're walking through that has completely colored your past. Maybe it is um, the fact that you're, you have Christians within the church who have been incredibly hurtful to you, and you carry scars. They're your kin. In fact, Jesus said it, didn't he? When people said, came to Jesus uh, and said, your mother and brothers are here, he said, my mother and brothers are the ones who hear God's word and, and, and follow it, essentially. So our Christian family. So we're to fight for peace. It'll be hard. It takes a long time. But it may be that. I don't know what your situation is. But we're called to fight for peace. And that is what it looks like to glorify God here in Abraham's life. But then we also think about people who are enslaved. Now, I have some dear colleagues at work. And I say this as someone who is um, a reformed addict when it comes to career progression. But I've got friends who are just absolutely enslaved to their career. They'll sacrifice their children at that altar. I know people who are enslaved to all sorts of different things. Because if you're not following Jesus, you're following someone. So I remember at university, a non-Christian friend heard the gospel and was obviously pretty outraged by it, but wasn't outraged by it in the way that I thought they would. I thought that the, when they heard that I said that um, we're all sinners, we need to repent and follow Jesus and live in the light and that the Spirit will in, indwell us. She was offended not by my message. She was offended by the fact that I hadn't told her before. She's like, if this is true, if you actually believe this is true, you should crawl over broken glass to tell me this. You should travel 150 miles. You should rouse up 318 men. You should Do what you can to fight for peace. Now, I don't know who it is in your life, but there are people that you know that I don't know. There are people that I know that you don't know. And they are enslaved. They've been taken captive by what our world believes. And they're enslaved. So I think Lot can represent all sorts of people here. And we can see that the fight for peace takes that form. Um, The next bit is... Fabulous. And I don't know whether this is, this is weighty stuff that we're going to discuss here. And uh, far more uh, well-learned people get very excited about this than I do. So hopefully we can just have a little look and a taste of how beautiful this next passage is. So we can see. Let's read it together. Go to verse 17, if you will. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolama and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. Sheva. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham. I'm just going to leave it there for a sec. We have two kings that are mentioned here. We have the king of Sodom, and we have the king of Salem. There's deliberate symmetry here, or asymmetry. We can see that Abraham is the big man. He's gone, he's taken a small force, and he has routed the armies of the four kings. He should be viewed as the big man, kind of the successful victor. And can you imagine, that's 300-mile round trip now, at least. He says he goes a bit further, actually. So we're talking an awful long way. He's exhausted. And he's met by these two kings that represent two different things. Now, the king of Sodom, uh, Sodom was a place near the Red Sea, by the way. Um, and uh, later on, that area uh, is referred to as Edom, or that sort of neck of the woods. And it was famous for gold. It was famous for wealth. It was famous for passion. So it had lots of passion and possessions. And we see he's come out to meet him. But then we meet possibly the most mysterious figure in the whole canon of Scripture. We meet Melchizedek. Only given about three or four verses here, mentioned again in Psalm 110 and then in Hebrews. Now, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7 mention Melchizedek, but he's not mentioned anywhere else. Um, And as I said, people who understand the Bible far better than I make a huge deal out of Melchizedek, and we'll see why. We see here uh, that Melchizedek is king of Salem. Now, unless you know what those words mean, his significance is lost on us. Melchizedek means my king is righteousness. And king of Salem means king of peace. So hold on, right? There's this guy that rocks up out of nowhere. He's got no kind of like, he's the son of so-and-so. He rocks up in the middle of this chapter. No introduction. And he's described as uh, righteousness embodied, or his king is righteousness, and that he is the king of peace. And add to that the fact that he brings out bread and wine. Now, as a Christian, it's hard not to see some significance in this. Uh, But essentially, um, he is bringing a meal to celebrate the peace won by Abraham. So we have the king of Sodom, and we have the king Melchizedek. But the real significance in Melchizedek is that he has two key roles. He is both priest and he is king. Now, that, that is rare. We, we just don't see that. The office of priest and the office of king are almost diametrically opposed. It doesn't go well in the Old Testament when kings try and take on the role of priest. King Saul tried it. It didn't work out for him. Okay, so we don't see king and priest. The reason being is this. The word priest that we have comes from actually the Latin word, which means pontiflex, which means bridge builder a bridge builder between man and God. So to be a priest means that you are trying to help build that bridge between mankind and God, which is completely the opposite of the role of the king in that time, which wasn't actually to to try and build the bridge, but it was to administer justice. So if there were things that were wrong, you put it right. You, You made sure the law was carried out. You made sure those wars were fought. 
You had to have blood on your hands. It could be righteous blood, but you were administering justice. So we can see that the king of Salem is both of these things. He's priest and he is king. What does Melchizedek actually do? So this king of peace, the priest of the most high God, verse 19, he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abraham by God, most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. So do you remember I said that Sodom had lots of passion and lots of possessions? I'd say that, do you notice what he does here? So Melchizedek welcomes Abraham with a meal of bread and wine. And then he, he basically gives the glory to God for this great victory. He says, blessed be Abraham by God, most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God, most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. So what he does is he gives the prestige to God. So the passion and the possessions belong to Sodom. The prestige is given to God by Melchizedek. And he welcomes Abraham. So Melchizedek, the priest king, welcomes Abraham with bread and wine. Now in Hebrews uh, 5 and Hebrews 7, they make a big deal out of Melchizedek. Um, and basically, we can see that Abraham views Melchizedek as more important than him. And we can see this because um, it is... Melchizedek, who gives the blessing. And in that Hebrew culture, to give a blessing, you kind of had to be kind of a more established senior figure to give a blessing. And similarly, uh, Abraham then gave Melchizedek, you see in verse uh, 20, gave him a tenth of everything, kind of tithed to him, gave him tribute. Remember, tribute was showing respect by paying money in that sense. So, Abraham responds, not with words, but with action. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, we now have a conversation with the king of Sodom. And you notice how there's this beautiful sort of, sort of poemy verse song thing in verse 19 that Melchizedek says. We now get some sort of gruff grunts of the king of Sodom in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now, this is a pretty handsome deal, actually. In the eyes of the world, this is, this is pretty fair, right? You can keep all of the stuff, Abraham, but I want the people. Sounds fair. Handsome deal. The world understands this, right? He's, Abraham's earned the right to take what he has, he has fought for uh, and... King of Sodom understands that and says, you know, just, just take, keep. But then Abraham, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, verse 22, with raised hand, I've sworn an oath <clears throat> to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I'll accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Do you see what Abraham's doing here? He's resting on the promise that he'd had a couple of chapters before. He's not resting on possessions. 
And this is significant. So for Abraham to live out what God has called him to do, I said we had two touch points, which was to fight for peace and to celebrate peace, which I think is his is a way of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Abraham risked his life fighting for Lot's peace. I mentioned that Melchizedek points to Jesus as the prophet king, but so does Abraham here. We can see that Jesus didn't just risk his life fighting for Lot's peace. Jesus gave his life fighting and winning for your peace, should you choose it. Melchizedek offers Abraham a meal to celebrate God's deliverance here. Remember, he gave the prestige to God the Father. Whereas Jesus offers you a meal celebrating his deliverance of you, and we're going to celebrate that in a minute. How does Abraham respond? Abraham responds by pursuing the promise of peace. He says no to all the possessions. He says no to the prestige. He says no to the passions. But he clings to the promise, even when it's difficult or when there seems to be other options on the table. And I think we're called now, each of us, to pursue peace, even when it costs us. Maybe we can pursue peace by choosing to follow Jesus even when our passions would lead us elsewhere. Maybe we could choose to pursue peace when our pride has been hurt due to the words of others or the actions of others. And we learn that that's hard and that's difficult. Perhaps we can pursue peace when it's going to cost us possessions, when it's going to cost us that perfect house or that perfect job because we know it's going to mean sacrificing something we're not called to. We can pursue peace by following what Jesus calls us to do. And that's it from me. Let's pray now. Let's pray. Father God, I know that there will be in this room people whose uh, pain only you know and understand. There will be people in here whose, um, for whom these words may have been offensive. There will be people in here who are hurting, who are themselves, been taken captive. But Father, we thank you that we have a great high priest who is also king, who not only makes a bridge for us, but also deals justice. Thank you that you understand that pain. You understand that suffering. You understand what it takes because Jesus lived it. Thank you that Melchizedek points to Jesus. Father, I pray now that your spirit would work in us. Help us to fight for peace. Help us to celebrate peace. Help us to love the Prince of Peace. Amen.